happens to that end. Uh, my worst nightmare, actually, I remember it vividly. It was so bad. It was just a few years ago, actually. It had nothing to do with spiders or kinds of malls. It was actually quite a serious dream. I had been, in my dream, accused of murder. And, uh, wrongly accused And I was hunted down and captured. And I remember, I remember vivid things like the handcuffs being put around my wrist and they were cold and I remember the clank of the cell and the coldness, the dampness of the cell. I think I was kind of imagining more of a kind of Monte Cristo prison than I was a modern prison of TV stuff. But the worst part about this nightmare for me is that this happened when Sophia was just about a year and a half years old. And uh, like all new parents, I was just infatuated still so after her. And it was the feeling of being separated by bar some other women at the tomb as well. I'll turn me down a little bit. And you have to get in their shoes for a minute. They had banked for three years on this man, Jesus, who had completely changed their lives. They'd left family. They'd left careers. They had left everything to follow him, thinking he was someone special, thinking he was maybe a special prophet. And then he was captured falsely accused, brutally beaten, tortured, and murdered. And now, he has been dead for almost three days. For three, the third day, he's been dead now. They are in deep mourning, deep sense of loss. It must have been like a scary dream, the worst dream they ever had, only it wasn't even a dream at all. And it's important for us to remember their despair for two reasons. First of all, you can't have Easter... You can't have Easter without Good Friday. You can't have a resurrection without first having real death. You may not have noticed, but in our worship throughout the Lenten season, pre-Easter, we had no flowers, we had no white tablecloth, no white doily things. It was a little bit drab, a little bit plain, a little bit simple. To remind us that not everything is cheery, not every Sunday is Easter Sunday. That's the first reason. The second reason is because every single one of us goes through grief, goes through loss, goes through gut-wrenching separation. And this text tonight can speak directly to those painful places. So, let's get started. Kind of going to just storytell this text. It's such an amazing piece of work. John, the one who wrote this account of Jesus' life that we're looking at, um, he tells us that this all happens on the first day of the week. And he says it's really early that Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. In fact, it's so early that it's still dark out. And 
as we've been looking at John's gospel over the last actually a year now, um, we've been noticing that he uses this metaphor of light and dark a lot. Now, first of all, he mentions that it's dark because it just really was dark. Mary came early in the morning and it was dark. But secondly, darkness represents in John this kind of not understanding. Darkness of mind. And Mary and the disciples, they don't understand what's happened on this first day of the week. Well, all that's about to change. Mary shows up at the tomb and she sees that the stone has been rolled away. Now, tombs in that day were oftentimes just cut chiseled right into hard rock hills, mounds. And you'd chisel a little opening. You'd have to stoop to get inside and then you could stand up a little bit once you're inside. And carved into the side of the tomb would be like a bench. And that's where you would lay the body. You would care for the body by anointing it with many, many pounds of ointment and perfume and um, in this account, 75 to 100 pounds Jesus was anointed with. Then the body would be wrapped two ways, in strips of cloth, kind of like like a mummy, and then with a face cloth that was also wrapped around the head, so two pieces. Now, she gets there, and the stone is rolled away. Jesus is just not there. Why am I telling you all this about tombs? and linens and ointments because there was a problem in Jesus' day with grave robbers. I know this is really sounds low, but people would come into these tombs and they would take these linen strips, very expensive, because they would reuse them over and over. Ask me about that later. They would reuse these strips over and over. They're expensive. And the anointments, the perfumes were very expensive. So these grave robbers would come in and take bodies and then they would... You get the picture. They would resell this stuff and make profit. It was such a bad deal that the emperor Claudius made a rule that if anyone was caught grave robbing, it was a capital offense. Okay, that's how serious the problem was. So, I tell you all this because when Mary sees this open tomb and know Jesus, she assumes that something horrible has happened, that maybe grave robbers have come and taken the body. It's bad enough that their rabbi, their friend, their master, their lord had been killed, but now they can't even properly mourn him. They can't even go to his body anymore. So she runs and she tells two of Jesus' disciples. Peter, one of the main disciples, and this other one called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that kind of funny? A lot of scholars think that that's John who wrote this account of Jesus' life. So from now on I'm going to call him John. That disciple who Jesus loved. And Jesus loved all his disciples. But John's just saying he's a little special there. And uh, what happens is, John and Peter, they, they run to the tomb. And this is kind of funny because all four gospel accounts have the disciples going to the tomb. But only John's gospel has the race, right? And, uh, and of course, John mentions that he wins the race. And, you know, I don't think there's much theological significance to that. You know what I think it is? What Leslie Newbigin calls the ring of authenticity. You know, when I think of this story, actually I was thinking of Eric Frazier and Ryan Kennedy. I was thinking, if these dudes were writing about a story, you know, and and let's say Kennedy was writing it, he would say, well, Eric and I ran, but I was faster. And I bet it was something that maybe the disciples even laughed at a little bit later as they, you know, retelling these stories. So, John gets there faster. He gets to the tomb and stops. He won't go in. Because to go into a tomb would would defile yourself ceremonially. And then you couldn't, like, partake in the temple. You couldn't partake in the Passover ritual that was going on. And he's still kind of stuck in this 
by the rules. And so John gets there. First he stops at the temple. Now Peter, what he lacks in speed, he makes up for in brashness. He, I, I imagine, elbows John out of the way, right, Eric? And just goes right in. Peter, just days earlier, just days earlier, had gotten scared and denied in public that he knew Jesus. Denied him three times. Luke's account of the gospel tells us that on the third time when, when Peter denied Jesus, Jesus, who was getting beaten up, met his eyes. And it just broke Peter's heart. So here's Peter, full of shame and sorrow and loss and guilt. And who gives a rip if I'm ceremonially unclean? I've got nothing left to lose. He runs into the tomb. What does he see when he gets there? Two things. Grave cloths, those linen strips, lying on that bench, right where the body would have been. And the face cloth, rolled up neatly, placed aside. John comes in, sees the same thing. This is not the work of grave robbers. Okay, grave robbers would have taken those things. That was where the money was. The scriptures tell us that John, this beloved disciple, believed. We don't quite know how much he believed, but he believed something different was going on. And here's why I say that. Just a few weeks earlier, maybe less than that, one of Jesus' close friends, Lazarus, died. He was dead and in a tomb for four days. You remember the story? And Jesus comes to the town after four days of death with a word. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes back to life. He's resuscitated. And he comes out of the tomb, kind of like if you watch Scooby-Doo and the mummies are always going like this. He's covered in these grave cloths. And Jesus tells his friends, unbind him. They have to unbind Lazarus. He's resuscitated. Lazarus was dead, and then Jesus brought him back to life, back to human life. That's called resuscitation. And Lazarus would then, you know, someday die again. He just came back to life, but he was a regular human being. But when Peter and John saw the tomb on Easter morning, they saw something different. And it's hard to explain. It's kind of like uh, when Obi-Wan and Vader are fighting, and Vader kills Obi-Wan, and then Obi-Wan's clothes just... Where does Obi-Wan go? Do you know what you're tracking? Okay, he just disappears. And, and that's really where the analogy breaks down. But there's something different that's not normal. Most people, when they die, their body falls down. But not Obi-Wan, he disappears. And something different's going on here because... These grave cloths are here, but Jesus isn't in them. What Peter and John don't realize yet is that Jesus is alive, but he's not resuscitated. Resuscitation, remember, is restoring life the way it was. Jesus wasn't resuscitated, he was resurrected. And that means he had a body, physical stuff, but it's different. And in the weeks to come, actually, maybe in your bulletin you'll see a, a card with our next sermon series on it. We're going to be looking at the resurrection appearances. They're pretty interesting, actually. Jesus comes to his disciples several times after he's resurrected. And we're going to find a couple of things out that he's quite physical. He can eat. And it doesn't just like fall out of him. He can touch things, touch people. He can be touched. He even resembles himself. People can recognize him sometimes. But he's also enhanced. 
You know all you guys that dream that sometime you'll get shocked or something you become a superhero like you're get bit by some powerful animal you, and you're different? Well, Jesus has got superpowers. He's enhanced. He can pass through locked doors, walk through walls. He can apparently teleport himself from city to city. Sometimes people recognize him, but sometimes people don't. Jesus was dead. But then he was resurrected. And he was the same but different. He had a new way of existing. And what this means is that the world has a new way of existing. Because of what Jesus did, a new reality is breaking in. And it's beginning with him. We'll get to that. Resuscitated people like Lazarus die again. Resurrected people don't. And the good news of the gospel you want one of the punchlines. The good news of the gospel is all who have faith in Jesus get resurrection life. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. But the promise of new life is when Jesus returns, all people who believe in Him, who place their trust in Him for this eternal life, will get resurrected life. Resurrected bodies that don't break down. That don't get sick. Oh, I would love that. That could pass through walls and do awesome, I don't know, maybe you could run really fast or fly. I don't know, that's not the point. The point is everlasting life with the Father. I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's return to the text. Peter and this beloved disciple, again, probably John, they head back home. They don't really know what to do with this information. And by all intents and purposes, it seems like they're still kind of despairing. They don't rejoice or anything like that. They go home confused and stunned. But Mary Magdalene, she comes back to the tomb. And she is weeping. She's weeping. The person she loved most in life was dead. And now she doesn't even have a proper way to mourn him. She stoops in to look at the tomb, heart empty, eyes full of tears. And through her tears and grief, she sees two beings, two angels. They're in white, and they're sitting at the head and at the feet of these linens laying on the bench. And by the way, in the Ark of the Covenant, and you remember uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've got the, the chest. That's where the Ten Commandments were in there, and, and uh, you know, the, this from the Old Testament. In the Ark of the Covenant, there is something in the middle called the mercy seat. On the head and the foot of the mercy seat, there are two angels. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice will be made in the holy place of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And that sacrifice will be placed on the mercy seat between the two angels for the forgiveness of sin for all the people that year. In John's Gospel, Jesus is first described as, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God between two angels. I'm just saying. Think about it. The angels ask her in her grief, it seems like a silly question, Why are you weeping? It's not because they don't know why she's weeping. It's because she ought to know that something different had happened on the first morning of that week. She's still looking for a what? For a thing. For a body. 
when she ought to be looking for the risen, alive Christ. Enter Jesus. Mary's talking to these angels. They ask her this question, why are you weeping? I mean, it must have seemed almost ridiculous. She says, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Something catches her eye because she turns out of the tomb now. She sees someone. She supposes him to be the gardener. He says, woman, why are you weeping? And again, she doesn't get the question. She's seeking a corpse. She's seeking a what. She's seeking a how. She's overcome with grief and fear and she misses the living Christ right in front of her. Think about that. This woman's life was changed forever by Jesus. She put her trust in Him and now He's gone. She's terribly sad and she feels that gripping, terrible sense of loss. Loneliness. Can you relate to that? Have you ever lost someone, something, and just felt completely alone? Distracted maybe by your own doubts and fears and grief and mistakes that you mistake Jesus for the gardener when he's standing right next to you. Here's the funny thing about her mistaking Jesus for the gardener. She's actually kind of right that he is not a gardener, but the gardener. Gardeners were the low end of the social scale in that day. But isn't that just like God to show up as a gardener? After all, Jesus shows us that he's the kind of God who washes people's feet and dies for them. Consider this. John tells us that all this is happening in darkness on the first day of the week. Now, think Jewish, think Old Testament. What happened in darkness on the first day of the week? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Darkness, void, abyss, covered the abyss. And He said, let there be light. And He begins to create the world. And then what does He do? He creates a wonderful garden. And He walks in it as the steward of that garden, as the gardener. And then He creates you and me. And He says, take care of it for me. Gardeners. God is the first gardener. Now, it's interesting that John, the evangelist, starts his gospel with... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, Jesus, nothing has been created that's been created. Jesus is this gardener, the creator of heaven and earth. The gardener of Eden. And now He's back. Dead, resurrected, and you know what he's bringing with him now that he's back? Recreation. New kingdom. New ways of living. New reality. Breaking in ever since that event on the first Easter morning 2,000 years ago. Hope of new kind of life. Calling people to follow him with this new resurrection life and giving us the task, the mission of being signposts of the kingdom, of loving our neighbors as ourselves in Jesus' name, to show that as a simple, as a symbol of the coming kingdom. 
There's Mary, mistaking Jesus for the gardener, representing each of us who have been grief-stricken. In fact, this is an invitation by Mary, I think, to bring our grief before Jesus. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid Him. And we might say, my loved one has been taken away. My hope has been taken away. My dignity has been taken away. My well-thought-out plans have been altered or taken away. My financial security has disappeared. My home has been taken. My job has been taken away, and I don't know where I'll find the next one. We can bring these realities before Jesus because His plan is to undo death. And if not even death can keep us down, then none of these other things that can cause despair can keep us down. This is not a a matter of what we can achieve or do. This is what the Lord is going to do. And that's great news. Mary, so in shock by living a bad dream, doesn't realize she's been talking to the gardener and not just a gardener. And then she hears her name for the first time. Mary. Jesus says it like only Jesus can say. You know my bad dream I was telling you about? The one where I was just sick in grief? Well, I woke up, obviously. And when I woke up, and I realized that it was just a dream, it was like I woke up for the first time, like I had a new life. And I remember hugging Corey next to me. It was kind of early, and she was really grumpy, by the way, and she probably doesn't even remember. Uh, no fault of her own. But I, was, I just wanted to squeeze, and then I, I went into Sophia's room. You know what I did? I watched her breathe. It was sublime just watching her draw breath and take it out and realizing that I could be part of that life. I felt, I felt so alive again for the first time. And Mary, she hears her name, but more importantly, she hears the voice of the one calling her name. She was waking from her living nightmare. Only hers was no imagined, dreamed reality. Mary had truly lost Jesus. It's very important. Jesus was gone. He was dead, and dead is dead. And he had truly been resurrected from the dead. All on that first Easter morning. Now, when I awoke from my nightmare and hugged Corey, she said in so many words, Don't cling to me! (laughs) Because I woke her up early. When Mary awoke from her nightmare, she must have grabbed onto Jesus with a death grip. And he tells her, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Mary may have been thinking of Lazarus and assumed that Jesus was simply resuscitated. She was still functioning out of fear. Fear that she might lose Jesus again. Fear that she might be left alone again. Fear is a powerful emotion and it distorts the truth. But things are different now on this first Easter morning. Jesus isn't being grumpy 
like Corey with, uh, with Mary, as if to saying, stop grabbing onto me. Not that she would say that. But it's almost as if to say, don't worry. Don't worry. Things are different now. I'm not going to abandon you. I am always with you. And then he said, go tell the others that things are different now. My father is now your father. My father is now your father. And my God is now your God. Our fundamental relationship with God has been changed on that first Easter morning. We are truly brothers and sisters. We are truly children of the living God because of what Jesus has done. Now Mary Magdalene, a woman in a patriarchal world, a former prostitute, is the one that Jesus chose to first preach the gospel. So anyone who thinks women can't preach, there you go. She's the first one of all the people that gets to go proclaim the good news that He's risen. And she came announcing to the apostles, I've seen the Lord. And she told them the good news about what He told her. And Mary's good news has been handed down for centuries and it bears on us right now. Mary's news is that because Jesus paid, covered our sin on the cross on Good Friday, and because He rose on Sunday, we now have right relationship with God. We now have right relationship with God through faith in Christ. Listen, I don't know what that does for you. Maybe seem like a big deal, but if you're like me and you know what's inside your heart, some of the darkness and some of the sin and some of the stuff that I'm ashamed of, to know that Jesus took care of things so that I can approach God directly. That's life-changing. If you've been burdened with guilt or shame or fear or grief, hear the good news of the first Easter morning. That through faith in Jesus, you've been made anew. Would you pray with me? And if you are uh, just moved by the reality of what Jesus has done, and just invite you to pray with me silently. Jesus, I thank you for what you did on Good Friday, for giving yourself for me and for all people and for your creation. You died. You died in my place. You took punishment I deserve. And then you rose again on the first Easter morning. You conquered the grave. And you call me brother 
And you invite me and us to be your children. Children of the Father. Jesus, I just want to say afresh that I trust you. Even though I can't see you. Even though I can't understand you. Even though it's hard to trust you. Trust that you're alive and well. And that through thick and thin, in the end, you're going to give me and all who put their faith in you new life. Resurrection life, not, not resuscitation life. And by your grace, I pray you grant us faith where faith is waning, waning and weak. In the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, amen.